I'm your co-host, Lee Kunle, and as always, I'm joined by our other co-hosts, Elena Papianis and Nathan Radke. Hey. Hey, everybody. So we have been threatening to talk about this one for a long time, and I'm really glad that we're talking about it because I've been feeling like we've needed to talk again about a conspiracy that really went down, that really happened. I hope I'm not giving too much away already right at the beginning. This one is 100% legitimate and true. I have to start that way because what we're going to tell you is so outrageous, so completely unbelievable. The kind of thing that if you saw it in a book like The Manchurian Candidate or a movie of the same title or something, you know, it seems fiction. It just doesn't seem like this is the kind of thing that actually happened. I think this is also... One of those where if people said in the 50s, 60s, 70s that this was happening to them, they were automatically taken out of any Mm -hmm. serious conversation. So what is it that we're talking about today, Nathan? What, what What is the big reveal that we're leading our audience to? The big reveal is today... Although they know if they clicked on it, because it'll be in the title. Ah, oh, technology. So here it is again. Okay. <laughs> We're going to do an introduction to MKUltra. And, uh, and we say introduction because there's going to be a lot of side conspiracies that are going to come up that we're not going to have time to cover in this episode. Are we promising to do yet more conspiracy? A mini-sode. Theory? We're yeah. going to do a, a couple maybe mini-sodes that, sodes that are related to this one. Yeah. Short, yeah. short ones that yeah. just sort of branch like, off? Yeah. Okay. So we'll do a whole suite, a whole MKUltra suite. Okay, so what? But what is MK Ultra? Okay, so MK Ultra is basically the CIA became obsessed in the nineteen fifties and sixties and seventies with two ideas: one, could you break a human mind, and two, could you rebuild a human mind? Uh, the reason they wanted to do this is because they were curious to see if you could create things like uh, truth serums to force people to compel people to tell the truth. They also wanted to see if you could program people so that they would be immune to truth serum. And then probably most alarmingly, they wanted to see if they could create the perfect assassin. And what would the perfect assassin be? The perfect assassin would be the person who doesn't know they are an assassin. And then after they commit the crime, they have no memory of doing it or of why they have done it. This is the plot to the Manchurian candidate, isn't it? This is mm-hmm. what that story is about. And you're saying that this actually happened. The CIA was really trying to do this. Now, I think what we're saying is that they were really trying to do it. Whether they succeeded in doing it, that seems like the kind of thing that we'll probably have to do a mini episode about. Okay. But yeah, they absolutely were trying to do this. They had all sorts of different uh, methods that they were using that we're going to get into. They're all terrible. We should also say at this point that this is going to be... Like, this is pretty bad. This stuff is pretty bad. This uh, is bizarre and completely disturbing, some of the things that were attempted, for sure. Because, yeah. as I understand it, it wasn't just the aims that are somewhat disturbing, but it was really that a lot of the people involved in this should really be thought of as victims, I think. Isn't yeah. that correct? Because a lot of this happened without participants' knowledge uh, that it was being done to them. 
I'd say most of it yeah, was without, without consent. Without informed consent. Yeah. For sure. Which, um, you know, after World War II and after Nuremberg trials was really against um, against right. international law, really, at that point, that you could perform experiments on people without their knowledge, without their consent of, or their knowledge of what you were doing to them without their consent, which we'll get into as well. Yeah, in fact, why don't we start there? Why don't we start with World War II? Because a bunch of things happened during World War II that we need to understand to understand how MKUltra sort of comes into being. Okay. And the first thing we need to talk about is maybe the most famous bicycle ride in human history. <laughs> It's April 16th, 1943, in a town called Basel in Switzerland. I've been there. It's really nice. Really? You've been there? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I imagine it being very clean. It is very clean. It's nice. (laughs) And it was also the home of uh, the headquarters of a massive drug company called Sandoz. And at Sandoz, there is a, uh, in 1943, there is a 37-year-old chemist named Dr. Albert Hoffman. And he's experimenting with uh, some natural products in order to produce, you know, marketable drugs. I uh, think he was, wasn't he looking for a synthetic alternative to acetaminophen or aspirin? Yeah. I think I that's mean, what they were after. Yeah, that's one of, uh, one of the possible avenues that he was sort of going down. And the natural product that he was investigating was something called ergot. Mm-hmm. Now, ergot is a fungus that grows on rye grain. It has some pretty intense effects and is probably a, uh, a substance that we will revisit when we get around to doing a mini-sode on the little French town of Pont-Saint-Esprit. Mm. Which might indeed be deeply related to what we're talking about today, but that's another podcast, See, so this we'll is why save we're that. Have to, Just keep promising them. I'm going to keep going, keep driving forward. I'm try- going to try not to get distracted by all these amazing side gigs. Uh, as he's experimenting, he at some point must have touched the chemicals that he had made, and then touched his mouth. We touch our mouths a lot during the course of the day. Even if you don't want to, you end up, you're suddenly touching your face. Yeah. So, you're like... so it actually, as I understand it, can be absorbed through the skin. So he wouldn't need to have even touched his mouth. The fact that he touched the chemical itself would have been enough. That was enough. That leached into him. Yeah. What happens is he becomes at first a bit dizzy, and then a bit disoriented, and then... He just starts absolutely, as the kids would say, tripping balls. Right. Uh, He's hallucinating. Everything is distorted. Uh, He's having bizarre thoughts. He doesn't understand what's happening to him. He described in the book his bicycle ride home as the the trees that lined the side of the road that he was riding along were sort of bending and meeting each other at the top. And it's sort of this kaleidoscopic vision, tunnel vision thing. It's cool if you know why. Yeah. Yeah. If if you don't know why. It's terrifying. Gotta be terrifying. And as Lee says, he decides I should probably go home and he gets on his bike and he rides home. And as he's riding, I have a a quote from him here. Uh, He experienced quote, an uninterrupted stream of fantastic images of extraordinary plasticity and vividness accompanied by an intense kaleidoscope-like play of colors. Which sounds like that does sound yeah, kind of neat. pretty cool. But if you don't know why that's happening, yeah. you just think you've gone insane. Mm-hmm. Right. Or something has just gone wrong in your, on your body or brain. Right? Or something's gone wrong with the world. Yeah, okay. Like, True. Oh, that's that? maybe more terrifying in a way. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, the world's gone mad. Yeah. So he goes home. He just basically hides under the covers for a while. And then he comes to... And he's normal and he's fine. And he's enough of a scientist to realize this has got to be that chemical I was using. So he goes back to work 
and he takes a very, what he considers to be, a very, very small amount of it, just to test to see what the tiniest amount of this would do. Now, here's the problem. Obviously, the reveal is, what was the compound he was working on? It was lysergic acid diethylamide. Otherwise known as LSD. LSD. And here's one of the things about LSD. Not only does it cause these tremendous symptoms in you, but it also is one of the most potent chemicals ever discovered as far as its effect on human beings. And so what would be considered a tiny dose of any other drug in LSD is a massive dose. So when he takes that next day, what he thinks is a tiny, tiny dose, it's actually what? three or four times what a person would take? Uh, probably. I mean, the first time, his exposure, I think, was something like one or 2,000 times what a street-level dose of LSD would be. I don't know <laughs> what he would consider a manageable dose. Less than that. I mean, if it were four, five, ten times, I mean, this stuff sounds... I'm surprised he went back and did yeah. it, frankly. Yeah. But I could also see why. I mean, he had just discovered something that had this incredible effect as terrifying as it was and there's got to be some kind of use for it right then he comes back down again and he investigates the cause and he figures out okay yeah this derivative of ergot fungus this lysergic acid di diethylamide that's what uh, that's what does it and uh here's another quote from him after the second time he had taken what he thought was a small dose i was afraid i feared i was becoming crazy I had the idea I was out of my body. I thought I had died. I did not know how it would finish. Mm -hmm. And this is a scientist who kind of understands a bit about the mind and chemicals and things like that. Now, it's important to know how terrifying this experience can be uh, for uh, reasons that will become clear as we go further along in this podcast. So any, any thoughts, first of all, on this, this sort of initial experimentation by by Hoffman. This is some real grassroots science right here. It's yeah. like you are experimenting on your body, on yeah. your mind, just messing with the stuff. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And not wearing gloves. Yeah. That, it was but, the wild Just getting West right in there. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Just hands. It's like a kid playing with Play-Doh. Yeah. Only. It's like, ergot. It's ergot. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind, knowing, of course, the direction in which this story goes is what I'm starting to think of as a bit of a truism when it comes to the CIA. In my mind, the CIA always asks one question first. How can we weaponize it? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's kind of scary. Right? Yeah. And and so it's whatever it is. ESP. ESP. Uh, you know, Cats. And, <laughs> and here we have maybe, you know, a guy looking for an alternative to aspirin. It turns out it has these uh, psychopharmaceutical qualities. Boom. How can we weaponize mm -hmm. it? And actually, maybe at this point early on, we should say something about, because we are talking about drugs, and specifically, we're mostly going to be talking about hallucinogens. And currently, they are illegal in the country that we're, that we're currently yeah, bunkered down in the bunker at. I think they're hallucinogenics. Some are, if they've been part of indigenous spiritualities, like mushrooms in South America and some South American countries, uh, peyote, they can be, they can be legal. But my understanding is LSD is certainly G7, G8 countries across the board illegal. Uh, and something that I wanted to say, just a little shout out to hallucinogens here. <laughs> I do think that there is a practical therapeutic use to hallucinogens. And I think it is something that proper scientists and doctors should be looking into because early signs are that 
there could be benefits if properly administered. Isn't there more about microdosing these days too? And, and how, um, well, other scientists or like physicists and, and people um, like that thinking in these, you know, big grand ways, microdosing to help them actually get through sort of blockages. Oh, yeah. really? And, yeah, and come, yeah. So obviously we are not suggesting that people do hallucinate. No. But I am suggesting that they should be studied in a proper way because mm -hmm. I think that they could be used to treat PTSD, mm -hmm. anxiety, mm -hmm. depression. Having said that, uh, they're illegal, so don't do it. I think we're covered yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah, we're good. All right. So meanwhile, while that fairly innocent event takes place of uh, the bike ride, the acidic bike ride, there are some sort of more alarming things happening at the same time. Because, of course, Switzerland... Uh, although they funneled some Nazi gold and did some other terrible and savory things, they weren't officially in that war. Mm -hmm. Whereas in uh, Germany, there were Nazi doctors in Dachau who were experimenting with other drugs to see if they could be used as truth serums and as mind control uh, agents. So the Nazis... So, sorry, Dachau um, is a uh, concentration camp just outside of Berlin. Yeah, uh, where some of... The worst. Uh, sorry, Munich, just outside of Munich. Where some of the worst human experiments took place. Uh, terrifying stuff. And some of these we've already discussed when we've brought up things like Operation Paperclip. Uh, the Nazis are experimenting uh, with mescaline. According to Walter Neff, the research scientist team uh, member, quote, to eliminate the will of the person examined. And obviously these are being done without consent on uh, people against their will. It is horrifying it is a travesty it is disgusting and uh, something that the americans are doing at the same time now the americans they're not doing it to the same degree obviously there are not the the level of uh, concentration camps that we saw in nazi germany in the united states but the oss the office of strategic services in the united states they're kind of the precursor of the cia they are also looking for a truth drug but rather than going with mescaline they're trying a drug called marijuana uh -huh. which is legal in, in some our, places. In our country. In some places and in other countries. And because it's legal <laughs> in the country uh, in which we are currently podcasting, uh, Lee, you and I can probably state that we observed an experiment on this where a subject who we'll call DW took a certain amount of marijuana. And as you recall, he immediately it was, became uh, very talkative and that's right. <laughs> and, and And we found out some very interesting things. Yeah, things that I don't think DW would have normally said. That's right. Stay tuned for another podcast on what DW said. Yeah, what did DW said? What's interesting is the OSS is, first of all, again, it sort of points out the hilarity of some of the incompetence of a lot of these agencies that we're working with. They couldn't figure out how could you get marijuana in the system. Huh. So they tried liquid and it just caused people to throw up. They tried presenting it as a solid, and then eventually they're like, I think jazz musicians might be smoking it in cigarettes. <laughs> and so then they started using it in cigarettes, and it was reasonably effective. They tested it at first on a New York gangster named August Del Grazio, and they said, yeah, no, it worked really well. He got real chatty, and he told all sorts of secrets, and so they thought, yeah, maybe there's something to this. Right. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say about World War II while these drug experiments were going on, there was also a professor and an advisor to the OSS called George Estabrooks, and he was convinced that there was another piece of the puzzle to controlling the mind. It wasn't just drugs. He thought that hypnosis could also be used to control a human being, to put them into a state of being susceptible to suggestion. And he was terrified that what the Nazis were going to be able to do 
is hypnotize, say, an American naval officer in order to have them basically become a traitor and fire on their own mm-hmm. ships. Right. And he actually wrote a book. Uh, I have it here. It's called Death in the Mind. It's not very good. <laughs> but that's basically the premise is that uh, the Germans are able to hypnotize a submarine captain who then sinks an American ship. Now, Lee, you have tried hypnotism? Yeah, I have. Uh, so I, I have to say that, and maybe this is quite relevant at this point in the podcast, I, I do think I, I am a hypnoskeptic, if I can put it like that. I, I'm not sure. I can't cite where I got this information from anymore because it's been so long ago. But I remember watching some very interesting kind of exposés about how you could get uh, the phenomena that seems to be hypnotism without actually hypnotizing people. It had a lot to do with compliance, conformity, you know, people often being uh, just performing what their expected roles are in that circumstance. I'm not sure if it actually works, but maybe that's kind of beside the point here because they didn't know and they were going Mm -hmm. through it and trying to find out. Although the OSS at the time at this point, wasn't convinced, kind of like Lee, they were skeptics about hypnotism. And so uh, they kind of disregarded most of the stuff that Esther Brooks said, which is why he ended up writing a novel about it instead. Okay. Are the Americans doing this because the Germans were doing it? Uh, they were doing it because they just wanted any kind of edge. Okay. I mean, okay. think about all of the different things. They, they were considering making a, a massive aircraft carrier out of ice and wood chips. <laughs> Like that was another, like any kind of idea. They were considering, in fact, I think that this was an idea that came from Eleanor Roosevelt, strapping bombs to bats and then releasing the bats over a Japanese city. So then the bats would all go hide in buildings and then it would all explode. Like they were trying whatever in World War II. And then, of course, that attitude would continue into the Cold War as we are about to continue into the Cold War. Okay. World War II ends. 1947, the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, becomes the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. And the new agency, uh, the CIA, is still interested in mind control because there's a new war on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Instead of the Germans, now it's the Soviets. Uh, We've already gone into great detail about just some of the absolute nonsense that they looked into. And if you're curious about that, uh, check out the podcast we did on Stargate, which I think contains some of the most ridiculous things we've talked about. Yep. Although I think for this podcast also, uh, COINTELPRO uh, yep. is deeply related to what's going on with MKUltra, which oh, we yeah, did one sure. on as well. So in 1950, the CIA gets some unofficial, unvouchered funds. So they get dark money. They, this is money they're not going to have to account for. This is money that's not going to show up on the books. This isn't money that they're going to have to ask for. They're just given money to open uh, Project Bluebird. And Bluebird is basically an attempt to examine what the Germans had done in World War II for mind control, what the Americans had done in World War II for mind control. And uh, the purpose of Bluebird is, this is the, the sort of the first official launch into the question, can we break a brain? And the first official launch into the question, can we make a brain? And luckily for them, they had another war, which of course was the Korean War. Hmm. Now, they examined the uh, German research, and here's a quote from uh, an unnamed CIA psychologist. It was a real horror story, but we learned what human beings were capable of. Makes me feel a little gross. Yeah, it's super gross. And this is an attitude that uh, the American government had about all of that Nazi research. It's like, hey, don't blame the research. It's not the research's fault. If they learned this from doing these terrible experiments, 
you know, those experiments were done already. Why shouldn't we benefit mm -hmm. from the information mm -hmm. that was learned? Well, you know, this is hard to talk about, but I mean, the kinds of things that we know about hypothermia, for example, or it's certainly the kind of stuff that we knew about hypothermia in the 50s and 60s came from Nazi experiments on Jews in concentration camps. Um, but I mean, that does put you in front of the question, like you have this data that tells you, okay, so a person can survive this long in freezing water, this long in freezing water. What do you do with that? I mean, you could use it now to save lives. Right. right? So I can see why an American scientist would say, we got to use this data, even though it was come by really terrible means. Although uh, I agree with you, actually. And although I would say that not only did they use the data, of course, as we've talked about before, they also brought a bunch of the actual scientists mm -hmm. over. That's right. And that's, I think, where you become a lot more ethically problematic. Yeah. Right. Speaking of ethically problematic. All right. So <laughs> this whole podcast. <laughs> yes. It's now the Korean War, uh, which means that the CIA has some access to, I guess you might want to call them unvouchered humans. Humans that they're not going to have to account for. Humans that uh, they're not going to have to explain their disappearances or what happens to them. And these are suspected double agents and prisoners of war. And so what they do is they basically kind of follow along with what the Nazi doctors have been doing in World War II. They subject these subjects to intense heat, humidity, uh, depressants like uh, sodium amytal, stimulants like benzedrine. Uh, they attempt to induce amnesia either through medication or through surgery. They do electroshock. They do lobotomy experiments. All of these are happening. Basically, these crimes are happening during the Korean War performed by the CIA under Project Bluebird in 1952. Was there, um, was part of this a sort of an American response, though, to the belief that U.S. prisoners of war were also being subjected to these kinds of mind-controlling drugs by... Uh, by the uh, by, the North Koreans, Soviets, Chinese. That's a, actually a, a really good point and something that uh, we should probably talk about because that is, I think, one of the main motivations is those American POWs who started showing up in film strips and things like mm -hmm. that, talking about how capitalism was terrible and America was awful and communism was great. And back with the American government hearing this, they thought, uh-oh, it looks like these guys have been... Brainwashed. Yeah. Brainwashed. How and that's they where they that, do that. Yeah, how yeah. they do that. And how could we do mm -hmm. that? But again, I mean, to Elena's point, you do find yourself in this terrible kind of logic that seems to animate so many of the really bizarre projects and conspiracies that we've looked into in the past. If the fear is the other mm -hmm. uh, side is doing it and we will, you know, lose our competitive edge militarily or whatever are we not then also compelled to do it? Yeah, and I, I think it's often that the, the first justification is we have to learn about it so we can protect our people from right. it. But then once you've learned how to do it, you're going you're gonna to do it to other people. Sure. And there's always going to be a good justification for that. I wish I could put scare quotes in things. Like there's going to be a good quote-unquote justification mm -hmm. for it. Because right. it's not a good justification, but it's going to sound plausible to the people who are making the justification. Yeah, and yeah. it creates this like escalating cycle of ridiculousness in yeah. a way and like bizarre, you know, attempts to, to create drugs or mind control or all these essentially human rights abuses in the end. It becomes like a perpetual motion machine mm -hmm. because one side does it and then the other side reacts and then the first side reacts to that. Or one side even thinks the other side might be doing exactly. it and oh, yeah, it starts doing yeah. it. That's the paranoia exactly. too that drives the cycle. Yeah. yeah, and if you're looking for paranoia, 
You're not going to do much Welcome. better than that. Welcome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not going to do much better than the 1950s. Yeah. So then in 52, uh, Bluebird gets renamed. And uh, in part, it gets renamed because now they're introducing a brand new substance. And that is, of course, the same substance that Hoffman accidentally took. Because the CIA buys up a massive stockpile of acid from Sandoz. And then they're like, huh, what are we going to do with this? Mm -hmm. And what they do with it is, first of all, Bluebird is renamed Artichoke. That is Project Artichoke. Project Artichoke. And now we have a new character who sort of emerges. He's from the uh, Technical Services Staff, uh, the TSS, which is a unit of the CIA. And it is a guy called Dr. Sidney Gottlieb. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be a really important guy. Uh, He takes control. They continue doing these experiments. In 1953, Artichoke is renamed MK Ultra. MK simply means that it's a TSS project, and Ultra is just a code word, supposed to be random. As we've learned before, they're mm-hmm. almost never random. Right. Now, they, sorry, TSS again stands for a technical services staff, and they are part of the CIA. Yeah, they're or? a unit of the CIA that is looking into things like, you know, drugs and chemicals, okay, and, and sort of ways to to wage. Uh, sort of different ways to wage warfare. And so Gottlieb runs MKUltra, yeah. essentially. Basically at this point, yeah. this guy, Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, is running MKUltra. Uh, so they know that LSD has a, a massive effect at extremely low doses. To give you an idea, one large suitcase could contain enough LSD to basically dose the entire American population. Like, mm. we wow. are talking about an intensely right. potent drug. And because it's so potent, that means that even small amounts of it, even trace amounts of it are going to have an effect. So one uh, TSS doctor, uh, I have a quote from him, and this is going to be ominous. We thought about the possibility of putting some in a city water supply. (sighs) So immediately for the three of us, when we hear that quote, what event do we think about? Mm -hmm. Paul Saint-Esprit. Paul Saint-Esprit, sorry. Paul Saint-Esprit, which we'll have to do a side project on. Now we're really getting MKUltra fired up and... I think the best way to, to, to phrase this, what happened next, is that the men of MKUltra had a very cavalier attitude towards LSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, they dosed themselves. They tried it on themselves. They dosed each other, often at parties. They dosed fish, snails, cats, rabbits, like whatever. What did it do to the fish? It's really hard to <laughs> say yeah. what happens to a fish. They're not fish that are kind of hard to read. Yeah. yeah. Although Vice Magazine uh, back in the day did an article on what happens when you dose different animals with acid. And spiders make really interesting webs. Oh, oh I bet. Oh, yeah. Their cool. webs go all weird. So cool. it does seem to have an effect on them. I mm-hmm. mean, fish, oh, I don't sure. know what they do. They just, it's, mean, all, it's all in their minds. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, They're tripping out and nobody really <laughs> knows. Yeah. 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 Must be so frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Apparently what the cats do is they start grooming without touching themselves. Oh. So they just sort of like air groom. Interesting. And also become afraid of mice. Hmm. (laughs) Burn. So there is just acid all over the place. Mm -hmm. Everybody's tripping out. Uh, They're struggling to find enough subjects. If you want to test drugs, you go to college students. But you can't mistreat college students to the degree that they want to mistreat these subjects. Right. Because they're trying to see if you can break a brain. Well, they do later to Ted Kaczynski. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They definitely, we'll get to that. Well, yeah. What about prisoners? Well, see, that's an excellent idea. <laughs> I'm starting to think like a CIA you're, you're operative. You're thinking here. like a TSS man. Well, that's that is, right. so they did use um, prisoners, drug addicted, often prisoners, 
sex workers, as we mentioned uh, before, terminal cancer patients, postpartum mothers, children, essentially, you know, already vulnerable people. And I uh, have a quote uh, from Sidney Gottlieb who said uh, it was, quote, people who cannot fight back. Really? Uh, yeah. And that's he him said saying that. it. Yeah. And that's one of those quotes where you're like, you know you're the bad guy here. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. But it's the Cold War. And again, hey, you got to beat those Soviets. I don't want to jump the gun here. But of course, many of our listeners will know about the uh, Netflix documentary called Wormwood. Watch it. It's uh, so oh, it's, good. Yeah, it's good. Watch that because it expands also uh, some of uh, the people who were being experimented on beyond what we've been talking about. They did dose each other, the TSS people, but not always knowingly. Something that Elena brought up, which I think is crucial, is this idea of the vulnerable members of society being experimented on. In particular, they went to Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, to a federal addiction research center. Hmm. So here are people who are struggling with addiction. Trying to get out of it. Trying to get out of addiction, trying to get their lives back. And this is what the CIA does instead. They say, okay, we're going to experiment on you. In order to pay you back for these experiments, which are going to be extremely intense and unfortunate and terrible, we'll give you the drugs you want. So they were paying these guys in heroin. They were paying these guys in opiates. Like, I can't think of a a worse abuse of trust Mm -hmm. than that. Uh, And then when you find out the extent of the experiments that were done on these prisoners, most of whom were African-American, what would you say, Elena, what would be a scary amount of time to be on LSD? In hours. In hours. Yeah. What would be a trip that would start to get like just absolutely I mean, let's terrifying. say a work day, you know, like an eight hour day. Sure. That's a long, that's a long time. Uh, Lee, what would you say? Depends on the dose, I would think. Um, like a serious triple dose, say. Then I think half an hour is long enough. Yeah. I mean, even that much is scary. <laughs> that yeah. be awful. <laughs> okay. So what's the longest in hours do you think that they would have these guys tripping out on LSD. Elena, take a guess, in hours. I mean, I'm guessing it's horrendous, so it's like 48 hours. That would be awful. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with Elena. I mean, this is, you know, this is the CIA. I'm I'm now ready to hear anything. I would not be surprised if they had people who never got off. Uh, And actually, it was an unfair question because I asked you in hours. The answer is actually 77 days. (gasps) That's... What happened to that person? Is there any record? We don't have record because these were vulnerable members of society. Right. There was nobody who was checking in after them. There was nobody who was trying to find them. So we do not know. The reason that we know is oh because the doctors were so pleased with this. We and I finally the, just picked my jaw up off the floor. Yeah. 77 wow. days. And because at some point they started building up a tolerance, they just increased the dose and increased the dose right. and increased the dose. By day 42, they said that the guy was, had really gone pretty mad. By day 42, oh my about halfway the, halfway through. I, I don't know how to put this because I'm certainly not... Just listen to this as, as generously as possible. But when you don't collect that, you, you do horrible experiments like this, and then you don't even collect or publish the data. I mean, at least you could learn stuff from the Nazi mm-hmm. experiments, not defending them at all, please. To, no, <laughs> not not defending them at all. Cannot stress it enough, but at least, you know, when it when it's over and there is the data, you can say, okay, so now we can prevent hypothermia or we understand this mm-hmm. or that. I mean, if you do these kinds of experiments and then nothing comes of it, yeah, it seems even more horrendous. No, they were just sort of curious. And it is very horrendous. 
now we're gonna sort of do uh we're gonna get back to some of the cia men who were being tested uh, i have a story that i wanted to tell about uh, one of the tss men who was dosed without consenting and without knowing he was being dosed they, they put it in his coffee and uh, here's a quotation from somebody who was there he sort of knew he had it but he couldn't pull himself together. Sometimes you take it and you start the process of maintaining your composure, but this grabbed him before he was aware and it got away from him. And so then what happens to this guy is he runs away. They've tried to find him because he's just running around the city at this point. He's running around Washington, D.C., tripping. So they try to find him. He's running across freeways. He's running across the street. Finally, he's sitting on a bridge over the Potomac. And here's the quotation again. Afterwards, that every automobile that came by was a terrible monster with fantastic eyes out to get him personally. Every time a car passed, he would huddle down against the parapet, terribly frightened. It was a real horror trip for him. I mean, it was hours of agony. It was like a dream that never stops with someone chasing you. Oh, that's the worst. And it's it's got to be so much worse when you again. I mean, we've repeated it over and over when you don't know that it's because you've been dosed. I mean, these these are the reactions that people will have even when they know they've taken LSD. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's scary then, and people will go to hospital then. I mean, what would you think, right? If you just are going about your business and suddenly your thought pattern changed like that, I think you would have enough wherewithal to say, okay, I'm... I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my mind Yeah, And that's got to be an awful, awful experience. Yeah, because your only two options are you're losing your mind or the world has gone mad. Mm -hmm. And either of those is terrifying. So we just took a quick break, and during the quick break, just sort of as we were hanging out and talking as we do, we we talked about how we don't enjoy getting manipulated by TV programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's sort of appropriate, I guess, because this next story is about, of course, manipulation, Mm -hmm. a more MKUltra manipulation, uh, because this is when another important character enters the scene, and it is Frank Olson. So Frank Olson was uh, working at Fort Detrick, Fort Detrick is basically like a germ warfare lab. And Frank Olson specializes in airborne delivery of pathogens and contagions. Sidney Gottlieb, who of course we're familiar with now, brings a group of scientists from Fort Detrick to an abandoned Boy Scout camp, which totally sounds like the beginning of a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And then... It's a retreat, right? Yeah, it's a retreat. Yeah. And then of course, what does he do? Drugs everybody. Doses everyone. Doses everybody. Yeah. Olson never really recovers from this dosing. Uh, he goes home. It's like the beginning of the end for him, essentially. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. He is, how long does he have after the initial dosing? I think it's like a weeks. week, yeah, a yeah, week or weeks. two. But Frank Olson essentially at this retreat, though, afterwards, he returns home. To his wife and family. Yeah, and ominously kind of says, uh, I made a terrible mistake. I've made a terrible mistake. And she says that he is, he looks haunted. Mm-hmm. He looks terrified. He says that he needs to be fired or quit or something. He's got mm-hmm. to stop doing his job. They try to go to a movie and he can't concentrate on that. He can't concentrate on anything. Uh, and so at that point they realize, okay, something's gone wrong with Dr. Olson. And so Gottlieb sends him not to a psychologist, not to a psychiatrist, but to an hourgist in New York City. Now you might say, why is he sending him to an hourgist? 
It's because the hour just already had top secret clearance. And Olsen, though, but but before that, doesn't he essentially try to leave? Like he tries yeah. to tries to to resign. Yeah, yeah, he tries to resign, and they don't let him. They they sort of basically say he has issues. He's de- severely depressed, and we need to help him and by sending him to this allergist. And that's the official story, and that's <clears throat> right. what they tell his family. Right. They don't tell his family, oh, yeah, we also just dosed this guy with acid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, no, no, it's fine. We're going to send him to get help. So they send him to an allergist, Dr. Harold Abramson. Uh, they take him to a play, and they sort of take him around the city. And then they send him back home. He freaks out again. He's pleading with them. He's like, no, I've got I've to stop this. They take him back to New York City. They book him into a Manhattan hotel. He calls his wife. Olsen calls his wife. She says that he sounds better. He sort of sounds a bit more like himself. He, he sounds less terrified, less haunted. But unfortunately, that night, he crashes through the uh, tenth-story window of his hotel room to his death on the streets below. There's a guy in the hotel room with him, a guy called Robert Lashbrook. Mm-hmm. Nice. Lashbrook. Robert, uh, and Lashbrook is basically Gottlieb's like right-hand man. Mm-hmm. It's, his, it's his lieutenant, basically. And he's not, yeah, he himself is not a biochemist or anything. He's just like a... He's a, kind of a goon, Yeah, he's he? kind of... kind of. He's kind a of handler. A, he's a handler, yeah, not yeah. a goon. The goons are the people who probably end up in the hotel room. Yeah. And so then Lashbrook calls Gottlieb before he calls the cops. We don't know what he says to mm-hmm. Gottlieb. But there's some operator somewhere who does. Yeah, that's what's amazing. Yeah, because that's still back in the day when there'd be a hotel operators who Named were... Named Mabel. Yeah, exactly. Who were switching, you know, oh, you're calling so-and-so and, and plugging in to, to connect to the other lines. So there's somebody who knows. Yeah. And uh, the official explanation is that he was depressed, he kills himself. And that's what his family hears. So his family has to sort of wear this for years mm-hmm. that their their husband, their father had just become depressed somehow and thrown himself out of a window and committed suicide. It isn't until 1975 where they hear a news story about an expose about a CIA man who was dosed with acid and then fell out of a hotel room that they realize that's got to be dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was that story was written by Seymour Hirsch, right? Uh, um, and, uh, and, and this comes from actually the documentary that we quoted earlier, Wormwood. Uh, when Hirsch goes over to the family's house, he knocks on the door and does not say hello, but says, I can't believe you guys bought that goddamn fool story the CIA was pumping you with. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he right from the beginning thought that this was completely a cover up, completely bogus. Yeah. And and it was, of course. Uh, it may be two cover ups. Well, yeah. And that because that gets interesting. Their official story was he was depressed and committed suicide. And then they said, OK, we admit it. We dosed him with acid and he freaked out and jumped out of a window. There's a third possibility, and we'll get into that in a future podcast. He may have been killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thrown There's out a strong window. possibility. Yeah. So that's got to be a mini-sode for sure. Mm-hmm. But they continue on. They press on. They're not going to let a bunch of death sort of dissuade them from this extremely useful work that they're doing. But they're still having a hard time getting subjects. And they're becoming more hesitant about dosing each other because of these terrible things that have right. happened. Where are they going to get guys from? Well, sorry to interject, though. Uh, one of the things that was a real problem with Olsen was that he had top security clearance. Yeah. Right. So if somebody like that uh, becomes unpredictable, mm-hmm. you've got a really big problem on your hands. And I think that was one of the things that the CIA does learn in this is that this is, a, you, you, you know, you can dose a prisoner 
or a civilian. But if you lose one of your, you know, main researchers here and they decide to go rogue, you've got a massive security problem. Yeah, they become a liability. Yeah. Yeah. Or if their brain never comes back, you've lost a valuable contributor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what they do instead is they rent out some apartments in Greenwich Village. Mm -hmm. uh, they I know where this is going. Yeah. Oh yeah, this is this is really at this point it's getting it's going to get so ridiculous. All right, so they rent out these apartments. They set them up with see-through mirrors, like one-way mirrors, so you can sit on the other side of the mirror and see what's happening. Microphones, hidden cameras. They basically set the whole thing up like a like a reality show house. Mm -hmm. And then they hire sex trade workers to seduce men, bring them back to that safe house, and then dose them with acid so that they can sit from behind the one-way mirror with their, their cocktails, because they were relaxing and having cocktails during this, and watch the effects. So just let me recap that, just right. so I'm sure that I heard you correctly. The CIA is creating a space for sex trade workers who are working clandestinely for the CIA. And being paid in drugs. And being paid in drugs to bring back... Uh, Johns, I guess, yep. people who are using, uh, availing themselves of these sex trade workers. And those Johns are being dosed without their knowledge and then observed by the CIA to see what happens. Is, is, is that... And what makes it even better is now you have recordings of these guys, which you can use to blackmail if you need to. And wow. they can also test not only the efficiency of LSD as a weapon, but also the efficiency of sexual blackmail as a weapon. Mm -hmm. It's win-win, guys. It's win-win. Right. Okay. Is, is this project, is this Midnight Climax? Midnight <laughs> Terribly Climax. Terribly named. Yeah. The yeah. amazingly named You've yeah. be Operation Midnight yeah. Climax. They eventually take it to San Francisco. Uh, they set up the same thing there. And again, continue their fascinating research in how can you ruin people's lives. Do they have any success in any of this? We're now in the mid to late 60s. They've been doing this for 15, 20 years. Have they gotten anywhere close to a truth serum uh manchurian candidate wiping minds clean um creating uh unknowing assassins have they done anything like this well with the truth serum no not really they can dose people with drugs and maybe it makes them more likely to talk it doesn't necessarily make them more likely to tell the truth right uh, the manchurian candidate stuff well let's talk about that for a second because you can't talk about the manchurian candidate stuff without getting back to hypnosis <clears throat> So we've talked a lot about the drug stuff. There was also the hypnosis stuff going on. The hypnosis research starts in 1951. Uh, CIA's head of behavior research, a guy called Morse Allen, he attends like a hypnosis show in New York City, you know, like the amazing whatever, cluck like a chicken, mm -hmm. et cetera. And he's sort of impressed by the show. And so he meets the hypnotist. This is in 1951. He is then very impressed when the hypnotist claims that uh, he is able to seduce women with it. And he even writes back to the CIA saying, like, this guy's getting action like five times a week. And so now they're like, you have it's our the, full attention, sir. This sounds like the beginning of this whole crazy movement of books where it's like, you know, how to how to seduce women mm -hmm. right. using hypnosis, like that kind of creepy guy mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. section of the Step one, store. do not read this book. <laughs> yeah. Step two, just cool down. Just be normal. Yeah, just be normal. Step three, don't be a jerk. Alan actually learns how to perform hypnosis. Mm -hmm. In order to get girls. Uh, probably. Yeah, I'm sure that was the motivation. I don't have any evidence for that, but I'm, it, it does seem like that was when he got really interested in it. 
1954, he does the following experiment. He has two secretaries. He puts one to sleep, and he tells her, under no circumstances do you wake up until I tell you to. The other secretary, he hypnotizes her and says, I want you to wake up the first secretary. And of course, the first secretary has already been told she can't wake up under any circumstances other than him allowing it. So the second secretary is trying to wake up the first one and can't do it. He gives the second secretary more instructions. If you cannot wake her up, I want you to murder her. There is a pistol in the room. It isn't loaded, but the second secretary does not know it's not loaded. And so during this experiment, it goes exactly according to plan. First secretary falls asleep. Second secretary cannot wake her up. And then she takes the gun, puts it to the first secretary's head, and pulls the trigger that a number of times. That is insane. This happened. This happened. And it is insane. Now, this brings us to, I think, an interesting question. Because what's the thing that we're always told about hypnosis? I mean, if it works, and Lee is a skeptic, but if hypnosis works, what's the thing that they're always saying is true about hypnosis? That you won't do something you wouldn't... That this sort of goes against your morals or ethics or something you wouldn't normally do. Yeah, you won't do anything that you wouldn't do normally. I've always thought that this was a strange thing to say. Mm-hmm. Because who's to say what a person will do normally? Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, we have all sorts of experiments that have shown that normal people... And do that, terrible things. Do terrible things. Yeah. Like, what's what's what are some classic examples of those experiments? Well, the Milgram experiment, when um, people believed that they were giving uh, an innocent person electroshocks, essentially, up until the point of severe pain or passing out or even death. Uh, Even when the person was screaming. Screaming and pleading. I have a a heart condition. Please stop. And they would continue to increase what they thought were actual electroshocks, but it was just a a recording, so there was no real person receiving them, but they did not know that. Uh, The Stanford Prison Experiment by uh, Zimbardo, where he just took some seemingly very healthy, well-adjusted students, made half of them prisoners, made half of them uh, the prison guards, and within, was it within two days he had to shut yeah. down the experiment? Uh, I think it was it at the end of the six w- days. By yeah. two days, it had already gone. Yeah, two days, they, like right. multiple prisoners had mental breakdowns. The prison guards were abusing them, like sexual humiliation, all sorts of humiliation and degrading acts being performed. And so really the line between good and bad is not so obvious. Yeah, so this thing that's like, oh no, don't worry, people under hypnosis wouldn't commit murder unless they would normally do so. None of these people were under hypnosis and they did terrible things to each other. Yeah, Yeah. like you have people deliberately shocking someone to death as they plead for mercy, even though, as you point out, it was an actor. But But because they're told to, or because because they're they're told that the experiment needs to be done. Yeah, so that line about hypnosis, that you wouldn't do something that you wouldn't normally do, that doesn't make any sense to me based on what yeah. we know about human behavior. Yeah, hypnosis, I don't know where I stand on. I don't know if you've ever, Elena. I've never done it. No, me neither. I, I don't think we should kn- try it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I have a hard time meditating. I don't know that I could be hypnotized. Yeah, my brain is... Well, I, meditating is like broken. using your mind. It's true. And whereas hypnosis is letting go. Yeah, it's that's true. So, it's more like falling asleep. I know, which I have a hard time doing as well. So. Right, okay. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Right, okay, so yeah. you probably would not be easy no, to hypnotize. Because no. it'd be like, you're getting sleepy. And, you'd say, and I'd be no, like... No, I'm yeah. not sleepy. And I'd be like, I have so many things to do tomorrow. What am I going to start with? Yeah. And that would be, yeah. But apparently, uh, they do argue that about one in five people is very susceptible to hypnosis. Right. It's possible that Lee is just not one of the mm-hmm. one in five people who is yeah. susceptible. 
But that experiment that Alan does, as terrifying as it is, I mean, he also argues that that is not an accurate depiction of real-world situations because those are his subordinates. They also yes. work for the CIA. Totally. So they, they probably think, well, I, I mean, it's, it's yeah. probably fine. This is probably a trick. This is probably a test. Right. So that doesn't really let you know that it would work in a real-world situation. But he does find it very promising. The fact that the secretary put a gun to the other secretary's head and pulled the trigger a bunch of times, he says, that's promising. Right. Because that means we can create quite easily assassins uh, who are operating without their knowledge and potentially against their own will, Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe not. But, you know, boom. And you can erase their memory of whatever terrible thing they did. Yeah, uh, in an ideal situation yeah. of Manchurian candidateism, I so, could see being in the CIA that this would be a very compelling uh, oh. line of research. So this is how it would work: you would offer somebody medical treatment—that's in scare quotes—right, and then when they come in for their medical treatment, you still actually start quotes. still in scare quotes. You start giving them this uh, hypnosis, and then you give them a trigger word, mm-hmm. and it's got to be something that they're not going to hear too often, right? Uh, like you give them the trigger word. John a blank. I don't Noodle. Know. Noodle. <laughs> that might come up uh, more, more often than you'd want. Oh, man. <laughs> there was a massacre today at the Noodle House. <laughs> uh, so then when they hear the trigger word, then they revert to their programming. Right. They assassinate the person that you want them to assassinate, and then they drop the gun and then immediately develop amnesia. Right. This was the goal. And, right. and they tried to do this on children. They tried to use children to essentially create them into these super assassins. Like, there's two... Uh, basically, if you watch, there's... There's testimony uh, from March 15, 1995, uh, from the President's Committee on... It's radiation and something, something, something. And there's two two patients, essentially, who claim that this was what they were uh, succumbed to. So Claudia Mullen, uh, Chris DeNicola, when they were both seven or eight years old, were essentially drawn into this program. I don't know how exactly like what initially brought them in again someone maybe their parent was like they have behavioral issues well, i need the to thing, right? bring like them at, in when this project was going on yeah. if you bring your kid to a psychologist for behavior issues there is a small but significant chance that you might be entering your kid into the world of mk ultra yeah so, there were some uh key research institutions as i understand it so there were some key doctors working in universities and laboratories across uh mostly the united states but to some extent canada as well and um if you were unlucky enough of course this was never <laughs> made known to you as a patient but if you were unlucky enough uh without you you know knowing you might find yourself wrapped up in one of these um in one of these experiments, uh, there's uh, a few really tragic cases. I've forgotten the woman's name, uh, who uh, she had uh, been sexually abused by a neighbor. And when that became known, her parents took her, she was 11 at the time, took her to a psychiatrist. Unbeknownst to them, this psychiatrist had connections to MK Ultra, And she was brought into the program under the auspices of getting help for this trauma that's happened to her. Uh, but really under what they were trying to do was wipe her mind clean in order to see if they could program her into some kind of super assassin. Uh, and of course, exactly as you would expect, it ruined her life. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I that often strikes me as just an extra tragedy on top of this, I'm sure this woman would have told people that these things were happening mm. to her. 
right? And I'm sure that everybody dismissed her as a lunatic who had yeah. nothing to contribute, um, that she didn't know what she was talking about. And everybody was wrong. Because the story is so ridiculous. It's sounding. so ridiculous, right? That the doctors who are trying to help me are actually hurting me. Are secretly and are, trying to control my brain. Exactly. I mean, doesn't that sound like just that classic um, paranoid delusional... Uh, presentation yeah, ramblings that you, right that yeah. you get in sort of paranoid yeah. uh, schizophrenia or something like that um and this woman is just one of many um uh, phyllis uh, yeah. goldberg is another one sorry um elena's gonna fill us in on... no i'm just gonna have i have other stories yeah. as well so um so i don't know if we've mentioned the time span but mk ultra ran from about 1953 to 1973 there were officially. officially 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 um there were over 162 different secret projects and they were they were essentially contracted out to different institutions like over 80 institutions in north america in britain they had some projects going on as well um and these are real like big name institutions could yeah, you name like some? harvard right harvard, harvard was, was part of it mcgill um, university and over uh, 185 researchers or so were involved too and and yeah, McGill University, um, Dr. Ewan Cameron, he was part of Subproject 68 as under um, MKUltra. And he was no... See, this is so bizarre. So This is the this part is, that's going to drive Lee nuts. Yeah, like, so he was, a, you know, a, a renowned professional. He uh, was a former president of both Canadian, the Canadian and American Psychological Associations. He himself diagnosed Nazis during the Nuremberg trials. Wow. And he performed. So I'll just tell you a few cases of the people. So he was a researcher, a psychiatrist at the Allen Memorial Institute at McGill University. He received, I think, maybe about a $60,000 grant, maybe more. And I'm going to tell you a few of the cases that I've come across of some of his patients. So uh, Janine Huard, H-U-A-R-D. I'm not exactly sure how to say it. She was the young mother for had hmm. postpartum depression in 1950. She was treated by Dr. Cameron for 15 years. He used massive electroshock therapy, experimental pills, LSD on her. Um, she was essentially, so what his method was, it was called psychic driving. It was essentially an attempt to sort of wipe the brain clean like rebooting your computer. Totally, like rebooting your computer. So an attempt to just wash everything away, wash away these problematic thoughts or behaviors, and then rebuild the psyche. Isn't it, sorry, just to be nitpicky about the metaphor, isn't it more like uninstalling yeah, the you're hard right. drive? It and is then more like, like uninstalling. Reinstalling like, a like yes. another like going operating back to a system. Yeah. Or going back to default settings. Yeah. Yeah. You're taking out like whatever OS 10 on your on your Mac computer and you're putting in a new operating system. Yeah, yeah factory factory settings. Oh. Yeah. So patients were induced into comas and they were exposed to repetitive messages essentially for days to kind of brainwash them and rebuild them to think in whatever new way that Dr. So Cameron thought. These are relatively healthy people, right? Yes. I mean, I know postpartum is a very these serious are issue, people. but these yeah. are people yeah. who are coming with an issue, but they're otherwise functioning and they're being brought into a chemically induced coma. Yes. I mean, yes. this is what's happening to and them. And it right? gets worse. So, um, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Nancy Layton, she was admitted at age 18 for mild depression. Within six months, she developed acute schizophrenia from the treatment that she was receiving from Dr. Cameron. She said in a letter that was read by her daughter 
quote, they destroyed many parts of me. I'm lucky to be alive. Uh, Dr. Mary Morrow, she met with Dr. Cameron for a fellowship. She was going to work with him. No he insisted said. on a physical exam and admitted her as a patient for being, quote unquote, nervous. She had 11 days of treatment. And as a result, she experienced brain anoxia. And essentially when your brain doesn't have enough oxygen oh and she now God. can't recognize faces. Um, a promising yeah, researcher. Promising researcher. You know, ugh. Uh, Velma Orlikow, she was the wife of an MP in Winnipeg. She suffered irreparable damage as well between uh, in the 1950s and 60s. She was made to take LSD forcibly and listen to tapes, t told to write down her thoughts while totally tripping out. Eventually, this is so like poetic and sad, she just wrote lost over and over again. Oh, um, now, there has been... There have been some class action lawsuits for some of this, uh, some of this treatment. In 1992, Justice Minister Kim Campbell uh, announced there were 77 former patients who, who did receive $100,000 compensation from the Canadian government. They were reduced to, to a ch essentially a childlike state, is what mm -hmm. they said. Many others were denied compensation because they, quote-unquote, were not damaged enough. So it had to be like a total annihilation, essentially, of you in order to be deemed worthy of some sort of um, compensation. So, you know, this was right here in Canada as well, too. Um, these projects, you know, ended up reaching quite far and wide and, and affected a lot of people who were otherwise healthy. Let, let me just, for clarity's sake, ask a question I think I know the answer to. None of it worked, right? No. None of it worked. The only like, thing it worked well, it, that worked it, was ruining the lives of vulnerable people. Yeah, so it depends on what you mean by worked, yeah. I guess. But even in the CIA's own terms, I mean, reducing somebody down to a, a vegetable-like state wasn't the stated goal, right? I mean, it was in order... Well, actually, that was one of the stated goals because that's an amazing weapon. If you can use that against a foreign dignitary or a leader or somebody, if you can that's drive true, someone insane, that is a very effective weapon against them. You do have to institutionalize them and give them... I mean, at that point, I'm sorry, again, we're, we're talking about people's lives, but at this point, it seems like just a straight old-fashioned assassination would be a lot cheaper. Yeah. yeah. Right? I mean... I think they, they were just interested in, like whatever sort of new idea or innovative idea people had different researchers had that they that they thought they might have some use for whether or not there was any use in the end and i think the way they justified in the end was that well what if it what if we had figured out something sure right really or what if really what if the russians really had effective. and we hadn't exactly you know and then we'd all be under the threat of Soviet communism. And actually, you know, sometimes driving somebody insane is a much more efficient method than assassinating them. If you assassinate them, you might turn them into a martyr. You might turn right. yourself into a villain. If they go mad, then you've discredited them mm -hmm. and your hands are apparently clean. So, yeah, that's terrible. That is terrible. And that was done in our... Because we're in Canada, in mm -hmm. case people are wondering where... Hi, everybody else, though, in other places. That's sure. right. Yeah. We're, we're very friendly over yeah. here in Canada. Thanks for listening to us. I know we got, we got some Australian <laughs> listeners. Yeah. We've got uh, some listeners in Turkey. Yeah. So, ch yeah hi to everybody. You are our top ones right now. Right now. Sorry to put you on the spot like that. We are like getting that. off topic. That's okay. We can do that. <laughs> we can do that. No, I love it. I love yeah. how we just are we need to meandering sometimes. around today. We've got listeners in Japan, Portugal, Morocco, Vietnam, the Russian Federation, 
I don't know how to say hello in any of these languages. Hmm. No. Uh, Kazakhstan, Iran, uh, France. Bonjour. 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 There Bonjour. We, we could do that. Oh, the United Kingdom. Hello. 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 Germany. Hello. Really? Really. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, people. Or guten, whatever is, time it is, or guten Abend, whatever. or guten, guten I guess it's whenever tag, you're listening to this. Good day, yeah. or whatever. But, yeah. but English is just German spoken badly. Yeah. So, oh boy. <laughs> you're going to edit that out. Is yeah. I'm editing that in. <laughs> right. So then that was like, that's horrifying. And that was done again. Cameron was being funded by the CIA to do his work in McGill in Canada. Absolutely horrifying. Lives ruined for just the the ridiculous logic of the Cold War. Yeah, and it comes. I, I've I've another salient theme for me in doing these podcasts is the bad things that happen when you get a whole bunch of people who are operating in a very tense and scary environment, a lot of money and power, and no oversight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, no you know, transparency, no accountability. No mm. accountability. How many times have we heard this before now with the CIA? Yeah. Right. I mean, Area 51, no oversight, no accountability. Do what you want. Figure some stuff out. It just over and over yeah. again. The more covert things are, the more bad things seem to happen. Yeah. And this one's worse, I think, in some ways because it's also have. There's also doctors involved. Doctors mm-hmm. and who kids. we have to, and kids. We have to have a. We have to trust doctors. Like, we don't have much control over yeah. our own medical treatments. And so we put so much trust in doctors. For them to abuse the trust to this degree is absolutely criminal. And what makes it infuriating is that this guy was at the Nuremberg trials, mm-hmm. which was, amongst other things, punishing the Nazi doctors for their terrible experiments. Which included this kind of stuff, Included right? this kind of stuff. And, and then this. he goes off and does things that are as bad as the things that were done in concentration camps. Wow. They were done... Oh, in the name of the place he was doing it at? Raven's Crag. Oh, yeah. That was the name of the place. Hmm. Sounds evil. Mm-hmm. Raven's Crag. And I Crag. mean, some of this stuff sounds so surreal. Like, this is what you mentioned right out off the top, Lee. It, it's so bizarre that it might seem unreal, but in fact, a lot of these things happen. Like, just to go back to those... The attempt to create those super agents out of these children, these, these female children... They were taught how to sexually please men and try and get them to talk like kids oh, at a, from a young age. They're, they're trained. Krista Nicola, she had a photographic memory and she was trained to remember numbers, to pick locks, to try and uh, to kill these dolls um, in strange ways. I believe she was even kept in a cage for a while, like just terrible physical abuse, sexual abuse. They're exposed to radiation. I believe they're both like infertile now. All sorts of attempts at to train them essentially how to to train their minds to be able to become these spy assassins and then uh, to induce amnesia in them so that they won't even recall it, which did not clearly did not work because they were giving testimony to their experience in 1995 at this presidential committee. Now, at some point, they must have realized, the people in charge of this must have realized that they had gone off the rails because in the early 70s, when it became clear that the program was sort of grinding to a halt and they hadn't produced anything of value, they started destroying documents Mm -hmm. at a rapid clip, which they were not allowed to do. But uh, some of them, they did not get a chance to destroy. They were... Were they misfiled or something? Yeah, they had been misfiled, which is the only reason they weren't destroyed. Mm -hmm. Luckily, because then those documents are leaked out to investigative journalist Seymour Hersh, and then he writes in the New York Times, and of course there's a massive uproar, as there should have been. And... 
At that point, the government uh, forms the Rockefeller Commission under Vice President Nelson Rockefeller, and then the Church Committee, which was specifically uh, to examine the misuse of drugs and the idea of informed consent. And at that point, like the whistle has been officially blown. It was sort of coming to a halt anyway, because uh, here's a quotation from an MKUltra official about this idea of trying to create the Manchurian candidate. If you have 100% control, you have 100% dependency. If something happens and you haven't programmed it in, you've got a problem. If you try to put flexibility in, you lose control. So ultimately what they decide was that the entire project doesn't work fundamentally. Mm -hmm. Because if you do make this perfect programmed assassin, that's not a good assassin. And if you don't program them perfectly, that's not a good assassin. Mm -hmm. So how many people do you think, like how many people at the top had an overarching sense of this plan? Because there were so many different sub-projects and researchers involved. How many people do you think were up there making this decision and seeing how terribly wrong everything was going or just how nothing good was coming of it? Only a handful. Like the director and... There Gottlieb. Would have been Gottlieb. There would have been a Git, uh, Gittinger, or what was Git, the other? Gittinger. So I mean, everyone else wouldn't really know that they were part of this bigger, terrible thing. Yeah, yeah. You know. And I found that I mean, I don't know the answer, Elena, to that specific question, but just going over some of the research we've done for the other conspiracies we've looked at with the CIA, one of the things I found uh, interesting was how there, in fact, wasn't. In, in a lot of cases, there isn't actually one person or a group of people who knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. There's different units. They don't talk to each other. They've got their little area that they're working on. And often there's this huge amount of duplication. Mm-hmm. You know, So two teams end up working on the same thing, but because nobody's talking to each other, they don't know. Right. Um, I'm guessing this would be similar here. There'd be very few people who actually had an overview of the whole operation. Yeah, and Dr. Cameron even... In Canada, the grant he didn't know it was from the CIA. Oh. It would it was it was the Human Something Fund mm-hmm. that so some sort of arm's length institution okay. that would grant these these grants to these researchers. So they didn't even know. They just thought they were doing important research. Yeah. Um, and another person who thought he was doing important research uh, was Henry A. Murray at Harvard uh, in 1958 when uh, Theodore Kaczynski. Uh, later is, known as the Unabomber. This has oh. come up before, oh. right? In yeah. our podcast. Yeah, and um, uh, he was 16 years old, and he was at Harvard, a young student at Harvard. He was super bright, and that's why he was at Harvard at the ripe uh, young age of 16 years old. And Henry Murray was sort of famous on the college campus, and he was known to be a really important psychologist. So he was recruiting patients, or recruiting people to be a part of his study. So, you know, hundreds of, of guys show up, and this I think is it was me. I think it was only stuff. guys. Yeah. Um, what's that? This is normal stuff yeah, for just psych recruit. students. Yeah. You know, like uh, I, you, I, yeah, to be a part of a study. For you volunteer for studies. Yeah. That yeah. Is, that's often actually when I was doing a psychology undergrad at U of T, that was mandatory in mm-hmm. order for you to get your course. Right. That you volunteered for two or three of these studies. But it's okay because you trust your yeah. professors right. and right. your school. So right. it'll it'll this will probably turn out fine. This will right? be oh, fine. Oh, this it's, well, no. Oh. But um, anyways, <laughs> so he shows up and. And, and students are kind of weeded out. So they're given all these um, surveys to do. They answer all these questions. Slowly, you know, it's weeded down to just however many um, participants. And Ted Kaczynski is one of them. His nickname as a patient was Lawful for some reason. 
he was... That was a misnomer. Yeah. Well, probably at the time, it at, wasn't. At the time, okay. because he was maybe very obeying conforming, the obeying the rules, right? Yeah. And so he would meet personally with Henry Murray to have these just sessions to talk. I think it was a, uh, every week for about a year or two even. where And, and so suddenly Ted... Kaczynski is getting all this attention. He had a somewhat, he had a troubled childhood and not, he wasn't um, a good situation growing up. So he, he appreciated this attention, this father figure, as someone who's asking him about his ideas and wants to know more about him. It's very flattering and very, it was very comforting for him to have this, this new connection with this, this important person at Harvard. Oh, this sounds great. Yeah, it's going well so far. And then, um, after that year or two period of one-on-ones that are really ple- like pleasant, um, Murray brings in a bunch of other, well, they meet in a different place. Now mm-hmm. they meet in some kind of laboratory, essentially, where Ted is kind of strapped into a chair in front of a screen, and uh, bright lights are shone on him. There's a bunch of strangers now in the room that all have... Uh, clipboards and they're taking notes or ready to take notes and he was um he was what's the word I'm looking for um well anyways this is what Murray said about what he about what Kaczynski would then experience quote uh vehement sweeping and personally abusive attacks so and this was the experiment yes so essentially now Ted Kaczynski has already opened up mm-hmm. entirely about mm-hmm. his ideas about the world and he's a bright kid and and he's, you know, given everything to Murray who is now using all of that against him to interrogate his ideas, to challenge his ideas, to tell him he doesn't know what he's talking about mm. and then to see how he reacts. So the study was essentially to measure how people react under stress. It was intensive interrogation and it was meant to see how well applicants to the OSS or CIA would withstand these kinds of interrogations. Hmm. And, huh. and this went on forever. This went on, I don't know, I forget how long it went on, but then Ted Kaczynski would still come back even though he was like, that was terrible. Right, but it's he was this lawful. Pa- and it's, he was lawful and it's this power differential and it's this important trust researcher and, and trust. Because and, he built all this trust and then now it's all being it's all being uh, exploited. Huh. So whatever en- ended up happening to yeah, our old Ted Kaczynski? That's it. I know where he ends up, but mm-hmm. what happened then from between Harvard and when he's arrested for being the Unabomber? Right. So he became a math professor first. Uh-huh. And then Were there signs at that point that he had been I mean, I guess and I guess we need to be clear about that. Yeah. We don't know whether MK Ultra and the experiments that were done on him made him into the Unabomber. There was other people who were part of MKUltra who did not become Unabombers. It's true. It's true. But we are suggesting that there is a very plausible link, potentially. Yes. I think as far as a causal link, it might not have been sufficient, but it was certainly contributory. Yes. Contributory. I, I, I feel I'm, safe in I saying that okay. contributed that yeah. to All it. Right. So he essentially went from being a math professor to being a complete hermit living out in Montana. He just built a little cabin uh-huh. with his brother and then lived in it with no, you know, electricity, no nothing. And uh, he had all these beliefs that, I mean, maybe were fostered even in his experience at Harvard. 
potentially contributing, right? Uh, his ideas. He wrote this big manifesto that, you know, society well is well written. That He was a bright man. Uh, society is evil. He had all this anger. Uh, he was anti-technology. He had fantasies of revenge and he wanted to escape into the wilderness, which is essentially what he did. And so there were a series of bombs that were sent, that he sent between 1978 and 1995 to different airliners, to different universities, hence the Una bomber. And he was eventually, he was eventually caught. Another successful experiment. Oh gosh, that's exhausting. So if the question is, can we break a human mind? Yes. Yes. Yes, we yes, can. We can. We did it. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Should we? No. Human br- human minds are very fragile things. Well, and again, I come back to why would you want to? I mean, I, I mm-hmm. don't see the obvious benefit here. While there might be some, there might be some reasons why uh, driving somebody insane could be politically or otherwise useful. It seems like a huge effort. Very unreliable, very unpredictable. Some people turn into Mm -hmm. vegetables. Other people become angry, you know, terrorists. I mean, it just sounds like a mess. Well, it sounds like there's so many different attempts or motives involved. Like, are they trying to break a mind enough so that they can get what information they want? But on the other hand, they're also trying to prevent American minds from being broken if they're somewhere else. Yeah, it's like these all these weird fine lines and all these kind of contradictory attempts as well, in a way. It also just seems like a willing assassin is so much more effective. That's what they decide. Yeah. It's kind of like when the OSS was trying to figure out during World War II how to make Hitler's mustache fall off because they thought that would make him right. look ridiculous. <laughs> and they're like, you know, if we could get close enough to him to make his mustache fall off, probably we could just poison him and kill him. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but it's funny what you guys are describing, like all of this energy devoted to just this pointless, destructive project, which ultimately causes like no benefit to anyone. Mm-hmm. Basically, you're just describing the Cold War entirely. That's true. Can, can I ask, though, something just because it sounds like we're wrapping up? What, I started this today saying that we've, I'm, I'm happy we're talking about this. It's one of the true ones. What's the evidence that MKUltra really did happen? And it's not just you know, the ravings of some people who are angry or delusional. Paperwork. Ah. So much paperwork. So what, much paperwork. What kind of paperwork? Well, this is one of the main ways we always do our research is we go to the CIA or we go to the FBI or we go to... So it's their own documents. Yeah, and it's their, their own, own documents. documents the Freedom of Information them. Act. Yeah. You can they, see the lists of sub-projects that were all involved in MKUltra. Sure. All the... And nobody Grant denies. Applications. Nobody denies. They've had to apologize. Yeah. Also, there was there was the church committee. There was the Rockefeller Commission. There so was this is out there. Like very for, well for listeners, if they want to go and tell their friends about MK Ultra, they do not need to worry that there is any doubt as to whether this actually went down. In the meantime, we should talk about our social media presence. Oh yeah, um, come join us. Uh, we are on Instagram at the Uncover Up. We are on Facebook at the Uncover Up. We are also on Twitter at Guess What the Uncover Up. Makes sense. And we have an email address. We do have an email address. What is it, Nathan? Podcast at the UncoverUp.com. And uh, probably sometime this month or next month, we are going to have a listener mail episode. Uh, the emails are starting to come in. And so if you have a question for us, uh, write to us. And if you make it on the air, we will give you a shout out. That's right. Which these days is very valuable currency. Mm-hmm. Better than Bitcoin. Bitcoin. <laughs>